I think we are in a mental health crisis, unfortunately. And I don't think that the cause is the pandemic. I think the pandemic just contributed to it. It highlighted things that were always lurking under the surface. That was Diri Amir, psychologist and director of counseling and psychiatric services at Georgetown University. And this is what we're learning about learning, a podcast about higher ed teaching and learning produced by the Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown University. I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. And I'm Joe King. This episode is a response to what you heard Daria recognize, that mental health issues are on the rise and have been for a while. So this episode is part of a series on well-being on college campuses. And in this first episode, we focus on well-being in the classroom and curriculum. How can we not only make space for well-being, but center it in our teaching, both in and out of the classroom? We feature faculty and staff who have focused on well-being for many years. In large part, this is due to their involvement in the Engelhardt Project, a Georgetown University initiative that embodies Georgetown's mission of cura personalis. This approach emphasizes profound care and responsibility for one another, grounded in individualized attention to the needs of the other to encourage each person's flourishing. Today, you will hear from faculty who teach in the humanities, STEM, and social sciences and employ Engelhardt's curricular approach, which you can learn more about in our show notes. Before turning our attention to the diverse and innovative ways that faculty are addressing well-being, we'll spend a little time discussing some of the factors contributing to the mental health crisis Dr. Mir mentioned at the top. It's important to note how long mental health issues have been on the rise. Finding ways to surface that and initiate conversations that open up relationships has long been a goal at Georgetown University. In a 2015 statement about the Engelhard Project, Georgetown University President Jack DeJoya noted, The core of what we are takes place in the interaction between our students and our faculty. And when you create an environment where it is normal, it's appropriate, it's encouraged, it's valued to talk about the kinds of challenges that every one of us faces, I think this provides a much healthier environment for our entire community. It's no secret that the past two years have exacerbated pre-existing issues in our student body. Here's Carol Day, the Director of Health Education Services and adjunct faculty member, on how the pandemic has impacted incoming students. When students are leaving high school and coming to college, they're leaving an environment where they've been at home in remote learning with their families, less contact with their cohorts usually, and they've missed a lot of milestones. So they seem and seem to be a little bit less developmentally mature, and they haven't had the same life experiences as the usual cohort of students that come straight from high school, where we've not been living in a pandemic in remote environments that are really much closer to home than in the environment they would usually be living through. And Daria notes that the problem is twofold. When we came back to campus this year, you know, we had two cohorts, the freshmen and the second year students who had to get used to college life. So we had, in a way, double the number of students who are trying to adjust to college. Other societal problems contribute to this threat against well-being, a theme that emerged throughout our conversations. Here's Jaria again, followed by Sarah Stiles, teaching professor in sociology. We live in a very stressful environment. We are inundated by news, and most of it is not positive, almost 
right at the very beginning of the pandemic, we had the George Floyd murder. And uh, I think that highlighted things that were lurking under the surface for a very long time. And in many ways, it just sort of exploded into our vision. How do we explain the epidemic of loneliness? How do we explain the racism? How do we explain white supremacy and violence and guns by looking at these sociological issues and backing up and realizing these all stem from well-being? These are signs of a very unhealthy society. Huaping Lu Adler, associate professor in the philosophy department, draws from her own experience as an Asian American to illustrate how these larger societal ills can impact students' well-being and in different ways. Our campus is increasingly uh, diverse in many ways, right? So we have gender diversity, we have racial diversity, we have class diversity, and each of these identities, right, different identities, can be its own source of anxiety. You're feeling that you're threatened, even your physical um, well-being is threatened. So this kind of anxiety can get triggered in different times, right? So as an Asian American, I can say that during the pandemic, being an Asian American is a great source of anxiety and sometimes racial trauma. And this kind of anxiety, if you know we don't address it properly, can really kind of bleed into other aspects of a student's life, right? Sense of well-being. And not just the students, but also faculty members as well. So there's anxiety at an individual level that's tied to anxiety at a broader social level. Daria reminds us that the mental health professionals on campus are removed from the lives of students unless the students seek out help. Whereas the classroom affords faculty with an opportunity to tune into the well-being of their students. It's the faculty member who has contact with the student, faculty member or TA, and they are sort of almost like the line of first response. They are the ones who are seeing the symptoms well before we do. These sentiments were echoed by other faculty. For me, the classroom represents the place where we come together with students to work together. And I think for me, this is also like a natural to create an environment that is inclusive, but where also well-being plays a, like an important role. Well-being influences also like not only our productivity, but also like how we perceive, process information. The classroom is where you get students together who wouldn't normally be together. Uh, the students really tend to follow the birds of a feather flock together. And so when they leave the classroom, they're with their friends. When they're in the classroom, they're with maybe their friends, but a bunch of people they wouldn't hang out with. And it is important that they get to know each other and not only to know how different they are with different backgrounds and families and tastes and cultures, but also what they have that is in common. Quite often when students are experiencing emotional or psychological distress or whatever it may be, there's always this notion of, I'm the only one. No one else feels like or is thinking like or experiencing like me. We know that they have in common that they are anxious and worried 
and stressed and experiencing overwhelm. And when they discover that other students are experiencing this too, it's very calming for them. And they only get that in the classroom. It doesn't come out in other places. So uh, the classroom is the perfect place where we can set aside, as I say, you know, our lives as social actors and back up and look at this phenomena as social analysts and understand what's going on. Well-being has a place in the classroom, even if it feels like your subject doesn't lend itself to talking about mental health or wellness. You can still emphasize it through the subtle and not-so-subtle messages you send as an educator. Here's Andreas Kern on how he connects well-being with his discipline. I'm teaching in a policy program. So the question for us has to be also like what type of policy leaders and policymakers do we want to produce at the end of the day? Um, and, and my personal view is like, where do you learn good leadership? You learn good leadership by people practicing good leadership. And for me personally, it is more like showing also like my students a way of how we interact with one another, taking the whole person into consideration. Elisa Kars, associate professor in the philosophy department, also connects conversations about well-being with her subject matter. I teach philosophy, but when students aren't thriving, they can't learn in my classes. So part of my job as a teacher is also to say, What's getting in the way of my students' learning? If you bring in discussions around things like obstacles to flourishing, all sorts of issues come onto the table. Things like struggles around sexual orientation, feeling invisible on campus, depression, substance abuse, troubles at home, and getting them to think about that in conjunction with rigorous philosophical materials brings the materials to life. It also brings the philosophy back out into their lives. Daria and Carol point out how helpful it can be for students when faculty explicitly invite them to open up and talk with them, starting with Carol. Students really respect the faculty and they like to learn. So it's already a very positive environment. They want to please you. They want to shine. They want to be good students. Um, and faculty have a lot of power over the lives and their educational careers. And students know that. So unless you invite them, they're not going to show you that they're vulnerable or tell you that they have particular kinds of needs. But if you invite them, they probably will. And I think centering the classroom as a learning environment and maybe even, you know, being a little bit, you know, personal. How are you doing? I mean, I share that with students, like I'm having a good day, bad day. I think something as simple as, you know, acknowledging that we are all struggling in our own ways. And I want to keep the door open so that if there is something I want you to, I don't need to know the details, but I welcome you to come and talk to me and tell me why you're struggling and how we can work to help you accomplish your goals and accomplish my goals as a faculty. I wish faculty members would be a little more human in their approach when that you're struggling, I'm struggling, we are in this boat together. Let's collaborate on making this a successful semester. Some faculty have found that opening up to their students by bringing their whole selves to the classroom and showing their own vulnerability can foster trust, community, and belonging in the classroom. Next, you'll hear from three professors who have been infusing wellness into their Engelhard courses for many years. Heidi Elmendorf, Associate Professor of Biology, Adilma Yearwood, 
Associate Professor in Nursing, and Jason Tillen, Associate Professor in Human Science. I don't think you can legitimately invite your students into this space if you're not willing to join them in the space. And I think that by doing so, that instantly changes the dynamic. Um, and it very much becomes an us as a community, as opposed to a me and them. I start the Englehart Project in the class by emphasizing kind of the openness of the space. I've been much more open with them about self-care, well-being, prevention. So I think they've sort of learned that it's okay to talk to a faculty member about some of these things. I have observed and experienced students changing their approach to me and to the class uh, once I've opened up. And I think it, it sort of has a ripple effect in terms of creating a place for the students to, to be honest with themselves and with us. Hua Ping talked with us about how when she learned that her own well-being was intertwined with the students, it transformed her approach to teaching. I never actually paid that much attention to the issue of well-being until, and I don't mean to be political here, but until the Trump election. And I was very open to my students that I was grieving. And actually, this, is, this was also when I started realizing that I can actually take care of myself by teaching in a particular way. And I started feeling that my own well-being is tied with my students' well-being. I started feeling that I wanted to bring my whole self to the classroom. And I realized that I could not just pretend that I was doing well because I actually was not doing well myself. And I was not feeling well um, mentally. And I was feeling really distressed because of the political situation in this country. For Hua Ping, bringing her whole self to the classroom included paying attention to her own racial identity and allowing herself to be vulnerable with her students. I would have to make a decision about how I show up. Do I just leave my true self at the door and enter the classroom pretending as though nothing is happening to me? Or I show up as who I was and how I was feeling to the students without looking pathetic. And, and so I decided to be open with my students and I decided to be vulnerable to my students because I realized that students were actually going through you know, their own things in their own lives. And it was really empowering to the students that the professor was feeling vulnerable and it was okay to feel that way. We could still do great work. Actually, we do better work because we brought ourselves to the classroom, because we felt that we were being noticed as whole human beings, the professors and students alike. And it was just awesome. In addition to bringing their whole selves to the classroom, Faculty can set a tone that communicates an ethic of caring, inclusion, and respect, as Daria notes. It's the little human touches that just opens up doors. Or something like if they notice a student particularly struggling, especially when you see drastic changes or dramatic changes in the student's presentation, just saying that, you know, I've noticed this, 
And I don't want to pry, but I want to let you know that you're welcome to come talk to me. Or if not, we can figure out where you can get the help that you need. You don't have to be a trained therapist to be a human. In a similar vein, Sarah Stiles reflects on the simple power of respect. What I have done in my classes, all of them, is let the students know that I'm actually interested. (laughs) I'm interested in each of them as an individual person and that I respect them. And if the student knows that they are respected, that the instructor actually cares about them as a person, it makes a difference as to how they absorb the material. I emphasize the importance of fostering the sense of belonging. So I do this by building communities. So I always say to my students, this is a place where you can make new friends. And I always emphasize that, uh, you know, you want to make uh, your peers feel that they are seen and they are listened to, they are respected, even when they are intellectually challenged. So that's kind of important. You just heard Huaping Lu Adler again. There are many things faculty can do to intentionally build community in the classroom. Here she describes another strategy she uses. One specific thing I do is to divide students into small cohorts. So for example, I would divide students into, you know, say five cohorts with three or four students in each cohort. And I give them instructions about how to build community. You cannot just leave them alone. You have to be intentional. You have to make it clear upfront this is a space where you help each other, you be, you are there for each other, and you support each other throughout the semester and throughout all the, through all the challenges. And because they feel they are involved in community building and in the process forming new friendship, they feel that they belong. And that sense of belonging can, can be very conducive to how well they feel. There are also some very simple and concrete things that some faculty do in their classrooms to help students feel grounded and present. I think starting with a breathing exercise, it's a very, very simple thing, but I think it can be really powerful. It's just that micro minute that you pay attention internally. Let's just start this class with a deep breath. Something as simple as that. Starting last semester, I would incorporate mid-class rest, the break. You know, I would have my students do, say, five minutes of meditation. So this is like a mental break that's actually pedagogically really good because it kind of refocuses their attention. There can be this moment that is like a present silence in the classroom where you feel everyone is focused and everyone is attentive. If you can use that magic moment, you can have a really collaborative, constructive discussion. And when I tell stories, that often happens. If students share stories, that will happen. I think it fosters a partnership with the students so that they trust me more. They're going to open up to me more. I'm inviting them to do so within bounds. And it's really inspiring. But it's not only about breathing exercises. There's this broader notion of mindfulness 
which connects with the practice of community building. So I do this at the beginning of the class these days through what I call Q and A practice. So basically, when the students come to the classroom, I said to them, "Put aside your phone and talk to each other, right? And just say hello, how you doing." Or just ask, you know, specific questions. I would have my students ask questions about, say, midterm is coming up, right? How are you managing your time? Or you know, some specific issues come came out during the semester. What's your response to it? So students feel like they are they're turning to each other for resources to feel good or to feel like they are in control and things like that. And I take this kind of practice. As a form of mindfulness practice, because they're not just going through the motions, rather they're paying attention to how they are responding to the world and how others are responding to the world and how they can be a little bit more nimble in how they themselves respond to the world. One thing many of us learned during the pandemic is that it's important for faculty to be flexible and have compassion for students' lives and circumstances. Carol and Daria offered suggestions for finding balance between flexibility and structure when setting expectations for students. I think that consistency is really important, and using students as partners in the classroom, asking them what they think, what kinds of learning, you know, now they're very experienced. They'll tell you, oh, this particular class had this particular way of learning, and I learned. I learned well there, or this professor at this technique. So you can learn somewhat from them, even when your class is set. But using the class and their wisdom as you set the expectations for your class. But the more you can help understand them, understand your learning process and what your expectations are, and not shift things around too much, and tell them you're flexible. You know, if you have a situation personally that you feel is really stressful, where you can't meet a deadline, please let me know. And and I think using that flexible but but structured style, I think probably works the best. I think it's not an or; it's more an and. It's important to be flexible, and at the same time, it's important to be firm. As a faculty, you have responsibilities, but as a student, you have responsibilities also. So I think setting some rules, setting some boundaries from the very beginning. That I'm happy to accommodate. At the same time, though, you have to understand your student responsibilities also. If we pay attention to well-being in our courses, we foster a sense of belonging as well as resilience in the face of difficulty. Sometime back, I was talking to a group of students, and I was telling them that yes, you you know you suffered, but remember that you also survived. You're now on the other side. It's like, what are you talking about? And I said, you all discovered different strengths in you. You you all discovered some of you discovered family connections. Maybe you all not, had not had a meal together for a long time, but the pandemic forced you to do that. You all found new interests. None of that takes away from the pain, but think of that as taking it away from the suffering. Suffering is more an experience, right? Pain is real. When you lose a person in To death, that's pain. But if you continue to dwell on that, then you're suffering. And suffering is something that you can address by remembering at least most of the good things that you were able to accomplish. 
And I think it's going to take us some time to recover. Addressing the trauma, but at the same time saying that, let's think about looking forward and let's think about how we can come out of this, how we can thrive despite the losses, despite the grief, despite the pain. Focusing on well-being in the classroom can reshape the learning environment. Hua Ping found that students responded well to the inclusion of well-being in the classroom. They tended to be more motivated, more connected, and to show up for themselves and for each other. Well-being issue can be a really powerful connection between you and your students. When you are genuinely concerned about their health, their well-being, they really do respond. They are more motivated to read for your class. My classes are very challenging. Like if you ask my students, they'll say, my class is a place where they have to put so much time because they cannot slack off. They cannot hide because I invite them into the space. They have to be there. It's a very demanding presence in the classroom. You cannot just sit in the back of the classroom and an hour goes by and, and done. No, you cannot do it. You have to show up. This attention to well-being demands that everybody shows up for each other. They have to do a lot of prep to show up because you cannot just show up physically. You show up by reading the assignments, by being prepared by having something interesting to say, by being able to respond to other students' feedback in an informed way so that you can signal to others that you actually truly respect this space as a space of learning from one another. Pragmatically speaking, your classroom becomes much more productive space both for you and for your students, when you incorporate well-being into the course design. Focusing on well-being can even transform your relationship to teaching. I felt I became a better teacher and I loved teaching more than ever. I never loved teaching so much before. I just started loving teaching because I brought my whole self into the classroom. And Teaching became a liberating practice and also a process of learning, both learning uh, about my students, about who they are as whole human beings, and also about myself, exploring different aspects of myself. And so I think my classrooms became better place because of that practice that attention to the well-being, both on my part and on the part of my students. Student well-being is a big issue, and it's a messy one. That's because we, as people, and as people in community, we're messy. But that doesn't mean we can't make an impact in our individual classrooms and in the work we do across the university. We hope this episode has given you some ideas for small steps you can take to center student well-being. We'd love to hear about the strategies you're trying and how they're going for you and your students. Check out our show notes for instructions on sending a voice memo to the Candles podcast team. And stay tuned for more episodes on well-being to come. In our research for this episode, we were so impressed by all the rich and varied insights faculty shared, it became clear the topic requires more exploration. 
So next season, we'll do a deep dive into a few specific issues affecting student well-being. We'll look into the culture on college campuses that, despite our best intentions, can sometimes foster competitiveness and stress over community and growth. And we'll explore the relationship between anti-racist teaching, identity, and well-being. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of What We're Learning About Learning. This episode was made possible by many people at Candles, including Eddie Maloney, Molly Chihawk, Megan Mataferi, David Ebenbach, Jocelyn Schultz-Lewis, Ellery Syverson, and Stephanie Che. And a big thanks to the many folks at Georgetown University whose statements contributed to this episode. President Jack DeJoya, Bob Pinglu-Adler, Daria Mir, Carol Day, Heidi Elmendorf, Sarah Stiles, Adilma Yearwood, Jason Tillen, Andreas Kern, Elisa Kars, and John Wright. Thanks also to Milo Stout for creating original and awesome music for the podcast. For more information about our podcast series and our guests, check out our show notes where you'll find links to previous episodes, information about how to share your thoughts and ideas with us, our website and blog, and other resources. Again, I'm Joe King. And I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>